writing is really hard and really awful. I'm about the worst interviewer in the world. And the only reason to write is to influence. Welcome to Shift Disturbers, the MPI podcast where we highlight the people, research, and ideas that change the way we think about the world. I'm your host, Ian Gormley, writer and content producer here at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. On today's episode, we're going to indulge in a bit of navel-gazing. We're going to take a look at the different processes that thinkers like Roger Martin and Richard Florida and others associated with the Institute use to come up with, articulate, and disseminate their thoughts and ideas. While these are unique ways of approaching thinking and research specific to the people that we spoke with, we hope that it gives you some insight into our work as well as giving you a better idea of how you think and communicate with the people around you. To this point, I wanted to share a short personal anecdote. My wife is a newspaper reporter and the uh, only fight we had during the planning of our wedding was when we sat down to write our vows together. Not because we disagree with the sentiments we were each trying to express. No, the disagreement came out of our different writing styles. See, I'm a big fan of throwing up everything onto the page or screen and then going back and editing it afterwards, whereas my wife cannot move from a sentence until every word is in its right place. All of which is to say that the way one organizes and articulates one's ideas is a highly personal process. No one is doing it wrong. You have to do what works for you. We begin with how our own institute director, Roger Martin, comes up with the ideas that become areas of research and writing for himself and his infrastructure team here at MPI. It turns out that some of the best ideas come from simply observing. Basically, I watch the world, and from that, I derive ideas. And typically, those ideas are a different way to look at a phenomenon than people are looking at it now. Somebody once described me as a phenomenologist. I didn't know these things exist, but phenomenologist just watches phenomena and uh, on the basis of that comes to kind of conclusions or understandings or insights and that's all of my stuff just comes from from watching the world and I experience something uh, when I'm out consulting to a company or I experience something in class or I read something um, or I have an interaction with uh, with an executive, so and and I just write on the basis of that. Richard Florida, director of cities here at MPI, takes a similar observational approach. Once he's got the germ of a thought, he tends to take in the world around him in order to flesh out its structure and argumentation. So I tend to look for things which are new issues, problems that are not very defined, and where it's hard to formulate crisp hypotheses. And I'm different than most other researchers in that I'm very inductive. Uh, And then I just start collecting data, reading, uh, working with my team, going out in the field and observing, collecting quantitative data, doing analysis. And at some period of induction and conversation, an idea might strike me that's worthy of an article, an essay, a blog post, or in some very infrequent cases, a book. I find that my ideas for books come through conversations with my colleagues, but also conversations with sophisticated editors. I think I have a good sense of academic problems. They have a good sense of what the market, you know, uh, 
Um, with the rise of the creative class, I was working on a book to try to understand the knowledge economy, the new economy, the technology economy. And my editor said, looking at my data, you've, you've defined a new class. Why don't you call it a class? And I blurted out the creative class. And that wasn't the original title of the book. It wasn't the orienting theme. It came out of doing the book. Uh, similarly, with the new urban crisis, I was working on a book called Reurbanization. I met with a variety of editors in New York, and one very smart editor said, what you're talking about is the underside, the dark side of urbanization, reurbanization. Um, the book you should write is The New Urban Crisis. Those kinds of projects come out of conversations with really smart editors who know the marketplace for ideas better than I do. I, I work in a way that a lot of people would regard as a waste of time, um, but it's not a waste of my time since if I did it another way, I, nothing would happen. That's David Frum speaking. Frum, a senior editor at The Atlantic and a former speechwriter for George W. Bush, has written a number of pointed articles denouncing Donald Trump. Speaking with us during a recent visit to MPI, he explains that, unlike Richard or Roger, he takes a much more pointed and hands-on approach to his search for new ideas. It's an approach born out of a need to play up his strengths to make up for his apparent weaknesses. I'm about the worst interviewer in the world. And when I started in journalism, I would play back my tapes and I'd go, I got nothing here. I got nothing. I don't have a good quote. Just when the story was getting interesting, I changed, changed the subject and ruined the line of questioning. I mean, I was, I was just awful at it. What I discovered was um, I was a very good researcher. So my beginning is I try to work with things that are already in the public record. So I, I begin as a researcher. I, so I work from data. I work uh, in libraries in the olden days, and now I work online. And, and I try to check it. I try to make sure that the, my information is bulletproof. There's a lot more data that matters that people aren't paying attention to. My first of my series of Trump articles was an article in 2014 for Foreign Affairs. And this was an article that appeared before Donald Trump was on the scene. But it sort of explained, and as I say, I didn't predict him, but it explained where he would come from. And it was largely based on a data series that had been done on the changing attitudes of the baby boomers over time. That people have been studying them at five-year intervals. And you can do a cohort analysis of the changing values of the baby boom generation. It's really interesting. People don't do it because there's a lot of numbers. I like to work with things like that. So I start with that kind of internet research, li uh, archival research, library research, and I gather it. On the flip side is Globe and Mail columnist Adam Redwanski, who during a similar visit to the Institute recommends getting in front of real people as much as possible, as he did while covering the 2016 U.S. presidential election. I'm a better interviewer in person than I am on the phone. Uh, I find people are better to talk to. I try to have a fair number of, of conversations where I sort of say, look, I, I, you know, we can do part of this on background if you want, or you can, you know, I want you to talk freely to me. And it's easier to get people to react that way in person, I find, than it is on, on the phone. You know, the funny thing, the big challenge for a Canadian reporter going down to cover American politics is that the access is just not going to be there the way it would have been. Older journalists here would say, oh, it's going to be great because you're going to go down and you're going to be able to get all these high-profile Democrats or Republicans to talk to you, you know, a senator here, an organizer there, because what do they care? Why wouldn't they talk to a Canadian? Americans are surprisingly accessible on these things. The problem is that, that they, were, they were thinking back to a time basically pre-internet uh, when, well, sure, why wouldn't they talk to me? Because who's ever going to read what's written in the Globe and Mail about it? And, you know, generally politicians like talking to media. Now, you know, there's no upside for them in talking to us, really. 
But the downside is if they say anything controversial, it's going to be picked up by Politico or whatever within five minutes. So it's a little harder to just go down and sort of try to randomly um, reach out to the most high-profile people. So I try to work connections here as much as I can. When I was in Ohio, I focused on on John Kasich because it was his big stand, his state, you know. So I went to his event, but I more would try to talk to people along the way. Might drop into local campaign offices. I find that can be a good way to to get a handle on what people are hearing or to get a bit of color and so on. I tend to put in a few calls before I go somewhere to talk to people who are plugged in there. I'm not personally. I'm not the world's greatest sort of man on the street interviewer. Um, I'm better, I think, at finding people who I who are going to be kind of in the know and then kind of preparing and talking to them. Once your idea is in place, comes the real work, articulating that thought to someone else. Ideally, someone who has little or no experience in the field that you're working in. That can be a tough slog, even for the smartest people. When I was in journalism school, one of our professors used to say, kill your babies, by which he meant, don't get hung up on lines and paragraphs just because you like the way they flow. If they don't add to your point, get rid of them. It's a process that David Frum appears to have taken to the extreme. When I'm writing anything substantial, I write and I rewrite and I rewrite again. I never revise. Uh, What I do is I write it once and then I throw it away and do it again. And then I throw that away and I do it again. Um, Only at the very, very end do I ever work off an old draft. It's very frustrating to my editors because I will show them something, especially those who don't know me well, I'll show them something, meaning just I want your comments, and then they'll start tinkering with it and put in an hour or two, and then I'll throw it away because, okay, God, I, I see what you're trying to tell me I did wrong here or how I could make it better. Now let me do it all over again. In fact, pretty much everyone we spoke with for this pod, whether they took a very methodical approach to writing or whether they were, like me, simply spilling what's in their brain onto the page to be tidied up later, emphasized not getting hung up on the prose. Here's Roger's approach. My process generally is to grow books. When I write a book, it starts out as a point form, 2,500 word, precy of the argumentation of the entire book. I do not believe in writing prose early. It's a waste of time. So you write a 2,500 word thing and I work and work and work and work until I can feel like this is a logical flow of, uh, of the book. Here's sort of the arguments I want to make. And it'll have lines in it like case study from Uber in it at that point. Uh, when I feel comfortable with that, I convert it into about a 12,500-word uh, precy of the book in prose, where, again, there may be a... The, the, here's where I'll tell the Uber story that illustrates this, but you've got the precy of the entire argumentation of the, of the book written out in uh, prose. And so I work on that for uh, a while, and then I grow it into a 50,000-word manuscript by fleshing out all the things that I've already put in the place they need to be uh, put in. Maybe it's just the way my mind works, and so I'm not sure I'd recommend it for everybody, but writing good prose is no small feat, and and writing prose that you can say, man, that, that was a good paragraph. That's a lot of work to get a really, really good one, and I hated wasting 20, 40 paragraphs because by the time I got to the end, I realized that I didn't have my argument straight and and scrap it. And I just came to figure out pretty early on in my writing is that if you don't have your core argumentation 
in good shape, you're going to create all sorts of sins. Like it'll, it'll be a mess and there'll be massive amounts of rework that I hate. I mean, I don't mind edit to make better. That's all fine. But throwing out vast tracts of stuff, I'd rather avoid it. Interestingly, Richard takes a completely different tack. Writing is very, it's terrible. It's really hard and really awful. You know, and for me, I need, like, I can't write in small blocks of time. I have to devote, I can't have much interruptions in a week. I think I write maybe like a sculptor sculpts. Um, I, I write a bunch of stuff and try to get a first draft which is always horrific and awful and terrible and embarrassing. So I try to throw everything down that describes an issue on paper. And then the process of making a book is like shaping the sculpture, you know, so there's a big blob of clay or a big blob of words. And then uh, over each draft, that blob of clay or blob of words becomes sharper. Um, but but writing is pretty mechanical. It's pretty workmanlike. It's it's you know you're working out ideas. You're not coming up with big ahas. You are working out, revining, sharpening. To give you an idea of just how much revision can go on using a method like this, there are ten chapters in Richard's latest book, The New Urban Crisis. Richard figures there are a total of about five different drafts of the whole book, and about five to ten separate drafts for each of those ten chapters. That's a lot of editing, but it's what works for Richard. So I think we've done a good job of establishing just how person-specific these idea-generating and writing processes can be. But what happens when you collaborate with someone else? And what if that someone else's style clashes with your own? Jennifer Rial is the Managing Director of Strategy and Innovation here at MPI. She and Roger have worked on a number of projects together, including the upcoming book, Creating Great Choices. As she explains, writing in collaboration requires both partners recognizing the process of the other and making accommodations for it without throwing your own process out the window. What I tend to do is have a really, really rough conception of the arc of the book. And then I will immediately think about for that particular idea, the theory that we've developed over a number of years, what would be a story? Who would I want to talk to? What could I imagine being the way into that topic for someone who doesn't know anything about it? I tend to use the story as the jumping off point for me and fill in the theory and and the rest of the chapter from there. And then my writing process is quickly get the first draft, get it out there. Don't worry too much about making it beautiful prose, but really get the thoughts out there. And then the real writing process is the rewriting process where you take the step back and say, how much of this was for me? I needed to write it to get it out and to conceptualize what was in my head, but it's not actually going to be useful to anyone else. So that's got to go. And then what's missing. So for a reader coming in, what would the additional information they need? And so we've actually written books both ways. And it's totally pragmatic, actually. Whoever's writing the first draft of something gets their methodology, right? Like we'll say for this particular thing we're writing, who's taking the first pass and therefore I might make my really, really loose outline slightly more detailed to make him comfortable. And he might make his sort of flow slightly less comprehensive to help me find the balance. So I think over the years we've tried to toggle back and forth between the two, but it's whoever's doing the first draft gets to make the call. For fiction writers, how you tell a story 
the words and phrasing that you use, is as important as the story itself. Similarly, the writer's style and voice are often important pieces of that pie. That's not necessarily the case when it comes to nonfiction, especially the kind of idea-driven tomes written by the people we've spoken with. In most cases, the whole point is to get ideas into the public consciousness and, hopefully, have them picked up on by various power brokers in business and government. And the only reason to write is to influence, right? You want to write to influence somebody's thinking if you're writing in, they're not, at least in nonfiction. So my method for doing that tends to be to try it out, try the argument out uh, with people and then, and then use their reactions to it to help me figure out how do I have to tell, do I have to give them an example here to make this, this point or can they not really take on that point at that point I have to do these other three things before that and then it will do and so that's my sort of process for for helping people helping me make my stuff more helpful than not to people while Richard agrees he doesn't find that his writing properly reflects his ever-evolving thinking for him it's not the best vehicle to achieve such goals rather he sees writing as the beginning of a much longer, more nuanced conversation. You know, I, I think the other thing is that I don't think books or writing accurately represent one's thinking. And I think they represent an element, a codified element of one's thinking. But my thinking is so much, at least I like to think my, my thinking is so much better and more nuanced and refined and multi-sided where my books come out so less smart or less nuanced than I'd want them to be. They, 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 they are a way of communicating an idea, which for me, I can communicate better verbally and in a conversation. So I think that writing serves a purpose because it's a very um, productive and efficient way to disseminate an idea and to build um, constituency or to build a conversation around an idea but but they don't do it effective. For me, writing is not an effective way. I would rather have a conversation or write a series of emails or be able to go back and rewrite the book in real time and constantly add to it than this idea that I finish something and it's done. It never seems done to me and it never seems right. And, and the good idea seems to come out of the conversation and debate and dialogue over my ideas. So yeah, I find writing to be very curious. That does it for another episode of Shift Disturbers. Hopefully you were able to see some of your own thinking and communication styles in some of our guest processes. A big thanks to Roger Martin, Richard Florida, David Frum, Adam Radwanski, and Jennifer Riel. Richard's new book, The New Urban Crisis, is out now in the States, with a special Canadian edition dropping on May 8th. You can read David Frum's work in The Atlantic and catch Adam Radwanski's writing in The Globe and Mail. Finally, be on the lookout for Roger and Jennifer's new book in the fall. Thank you for listening to Shift Disturbers. This episode was written and produced by myself, Ian Gormley. If you want to know more about the goings-on around the Martin Prosperity Institute, head over to martinprosperity.org or follow us on Twitter at Martin Prosperity. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T. Note the lack of a Y at the end there. And to make sure you never miss an episode of Shift Disturbers, click the subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Once again, I'm Ian Gormley, and thanks for listening.